Um, the second thing I would say is that I'm actually highly optimistic about the current experimentation that's taking place on so many campuses across our country. You know, higher education gets a bad rap for not being forward thinking or sufficiently responsive. However, if you look back at the history of higher ed in this country over the past 400 plus years, you actually see an abundance of examples of where higher ed, the higher ed industry, reimagined itself in response to the changing needs of society. And we are living now in one of those eras. I think we're gonna see incredible transformation in the years ahead, so much so that when people uh, look back, they will look back to this time as being pivotal to the reimagination of higher ed as we know it. And, and so to be on the cusp of, of that and to have some sense as to what's coming is just really uh, exciting. And uh, I, am, I am optimistic. Hello, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading-edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading-edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious You is a production of Chelip, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about Chelip, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chelep. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this bonus episode of Ingenious You. I'm so pleased to have as my co-host today, Dr. Mila Dekka. Mila serves as coordinator of our doctoral program in higher education leadership and organizational studies, affectionately known as HELOS here at Baypath University. I've included a link to Mila's bio in the show notes for this episode. Suffice it to say that she has a very impressive background. She has held senior level positions at several institutions and is widely recognized as a leader and a prominent thought a spokesperson in the student development, student affairs profession in particular within higher education. For this episode, we're gonna turn the tables a little bit and Mila is going to interview me about a number of different topics, including what we have learned from our season one podcast guests. Mila, welcome to Ingenious and to the hosting seat for today's episode. I look forward to our conversation. 
Great. Melissa, thank you so much uh, for a lovely introduction uh, and also especially for agreeing to be interviewed. Um, often when we work together, we don't have a chance to really delve into somebody's background. Um, so we're going to take some time today to do that as well as explore some of the insight that you've gained through this first season. So let me do a little um, uh, background setting, if you, if I might. And um, Melissa, you recently stepped aside after a good 10-year run as provost at Bay Path to lead and teach in Bay Path's new doctoral program uh, in higher education leadership and organizational studies, and also to direct the new center, Chellop. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this and what you're doing? I am very excited about this next chapter in my life. As you mentioned, I am in a new role. I am serving as Distinguished Professor of Higher Ed Leadership and also Founding Director of the Doctoral Program and our new Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice, which we refer to as CHELUP. Let me tell you just a little bit about CHELUP. CHELUP operates as a university-wide learning hub, which is supported by an advisory, advisory board of partners who are among the most innovative thinkers in higher ed today. Through CHELUP, we're providing training opportunities and adaptive leadership. We're convening discussions focused on innovative ideas across a range of challenges facing higher ed, present and future. We're disseminating content that reports on breakthroughs and other higher ed innovation best practices and sponsoring webinars, seminars, and other forums involving trailblazing practitioners and thinkers. As you know, in this past year, we launched this podcast, as well as a blog, both of which are under the name of Ingenious You. And together, these uh, communication vehicles are really designed to help higher ed professionals stay ahead of the curve with resources about best practices, industry trends, and leading edge thinking. We just concluded season one of the podcast, which included 20 episodes with some incredible guests from college and university presidents to faculty members to best-selling authors and practitioners who are experimenting with some really interesting new ways of thinking about higher ed. And finally, we also launched the Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Ed webinar series, which features individuals who are at the forefront of new ways of leading and practice. I just wanna add, these are all free resources. They are available to anyone who has an interest in the future of higher education. They will find the links on our website, but obviously we have been very, very busy. Now, let me just, uh, say a couple of words about the doctoral program. I'm not aware of any doctoral program that prepares higher education professionals in quite the way that the Bay Path Helos program does, especially today in this current climate where disruption is the new normal. Leaders need to think and act differently than we did even a few years ago. And this doctoral program is all about helping our students develop both the mindset and the skill set to effectively lead change and innovation in an organizational context. As you know, our students come from a wide variety of institutional types, small colleges, large, public, private. They hold roles across the institution. We have many faculty members, as well as staff and administrators. But the point is that regardless of the role or institutional context that students come from, they will graduate with what they need to effectively lead in a highly dynamic and disruptive environment. I just finished teaching two courses in the program. I am so impressed with the quality and the caliber of our students. 
Uh, many of our students hold impressive titles within their institutions. We have several who serve as vice presidents. We have individuals who are serving as chief of staff to the presidents of their institutions. Net, net, uh, these wide ranging backgrounds make for such a dynamic and interactive, rich community within the classroom. Now you're teaching, Mila. I what am. would you what would you add to that? What what have you found? Uh, you know, funny, I was just I was going to just ask you if there's anything that surprised you about returning to the classroom uh, full time. Um, I, I will have to say, I think there's two things that really stand out for me. Um, it, you know, what has just been so uh, rich, I think, uh, you know, from a faculty perspective is how students have really engaged not only with the material but applying the material in, in their own day-to-day -day professional settings and uh, they have really talked about um, particularly during this period of, of enormous change how um, what they're considering and learning and learning from each other um, has really sustained them and enabled them to to still perform not just well but increasingly effectively in their roles and uh, you know I think that's a really early um, uh, sign of, of of the quality of their experience. Um, uh, the second thing, though, I, you know, I think I don't want to say this was entirely surprising, but um, and you and I'll be curious to hear if this is something you've seen um, because we're engaging with students from all across the country as you talked about in different institutional settings and different roles um, i have learned a lot from them and um, uh, it, it's helped me hear and and think about uh, some of the emerging trends in higher education and uh, some of the some of the challenges that they're facing uh, in in their own work um, that that may span across uh, the variety that they represent. Uh, and that's been hugely interesting. I think that's something to continue to pay attention to as, as we talk about uh, the time ahead for higher education. Um, and they act a little bit like a, an early sensing, sensing network, if you will. Is oh, that for sure, for sure. And that has been very much the case. In fact, I've been, uh, I have been uh, impressed, but also uh, taken back a little bit by how much disruption all of these students are reporting out on at their respective institutions. And as, as we said, these students represent the gamut of institutional type. We have students at very large, fairly healthy institutions to students at small, very resource constrained institutions. They are all talking about the disruption and the challenges and uh, I, I would agree that these challenges very much um, are the things that are on the radar that we all need to be thinking about in regard to the future. Right, good. Well, let, let me shift a little bit now and, um, you know, taking advantage of that, that, that concept of resource constrained institutions. Um, you've held senior level leadership roles at two resource constrained institutions, each of which, however, has really undergone a, a really interesting transformation process, uh, despite that. Um, from your experience, what lessons have you learned that you might pass along to other leaders who want to grow or strengthen their institutions, especially during the, uh, what is, you know, admittedly a really difficult time? Yes, boy, that's a good question. And, you know, I think there are many, but let me just highlight a few of the lessons and takeaways that I think are especially relevant right now, starting with 
the fact that program and revenue diversification are absolutely paramount. There are still too many institutions that are resisting the move to online. Now, we are coming, or we will shortly be coming off a period where just about all institutions pivoted to some kind of virtual learning. But what, what strikes me is how many people I still hear saying, when we go back to the way it used to be, when we go back to normal. And frankly, I don't think there is a return to any kind of normal as we as we used to as we used to know it. Um, the very very best way to lower your risk for the future uncertainty that is sure to come is to have as broad a portfolio of offerings and delivery models as your institution can afford. The more you have, the uh, less vulnerable you're going to be to risk should one of those offerings uh, go south in terms of market responsiveness. Now, obviously, it is not smart to try and be all things to all students because most of our institutions are uh, also experiencing uh, limited, limited resource challenges. However, every institution typically has untapped potential to broaden its reach starting with moving existing campus-based programs online in order to offer students some choice and also looking around to see who else you might be able to partner with so that you're not necessarily having to start up these offerings all by yourself. There's some fabulous um, course sharing consortia that are now available um, and institutions can tap into these to launch majors and minors with, uh, with very little expense compared to how uh, we used to have to do this. Um, second thing is that even when times are tough, and this is a related point, do not stop investing in the future. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in the, even in the direst of times, there are opportunities to be found for those who can rise above the trenches and consider the full range of assets that are available to any institution. And this is really what I was just talking about. Sometimes those assets are found in partnerships with other institutions and organizations in your area. In these times of diminishing resources, finding external partners with whom to align so that your mission can be leveraged more broadly in new and interesting ways, but perhaps less expensively is absolutely essential. I believe post COVID that very few institutions are gonna be able to be all things to their students. At present, a still untapped partnership opportunity is the global higher ed market, especially for smaller regional colleges. Finding a partner that has a strong global presence could be very helpful for ensuring post COVID survival. The point is to look outward and consider your resource base in the broadest, uh, way possible. Um, the third, when balancing operating efficiencies and market responsiveness, you want to always err on the side of market responsiveness. Now, one of the ongoing tensions in any entrepreneurial organization is the need to achieve operating efficiencies and reduce complexity while operating in a flexible and a highly adaptive manner. And this is a tension that is certainly alive and well at Baypath, as well as other institutions where I have worked. Given the wide range of delivery models, calendars, pricing schemes, and curricular arrangements at Baypath, 
there's always someone who believes the balance has tipped too far in one direction or the other. And yet it has been Baypass' ability to respond on a dime to market opportunities by structuring programs in a flexible and an adaptive way that has provided us with an advantage that most of the competitors do not possess. Ironically, one needs to also be aware of the potential for new innovations to lose their flexibility once they're enveloped into an institution's structure. And what I mean there is that sometimes the very thing that helps you be successful is the very thing that needs to be changed and adapted over time, lest it become outdated and something that holds you back. And then four is to exploit synergies because synergies truly are everywhere if you are able and willing to look at things with new eyes. Uh, for example, uh, an example here, much of Baypass success with new program invention has begun with our ability to leverage synergies that have been right in, in front of us. So for example, the first few graduate programs that we brought up were built on top of existing undergraduate programs. The reason we did that is because it gave us a built-in student pipeline right from the outset. Many of the graduate programs have been de designed so that students could customize their programs with coursework and certificates from other areas, leading many to stay on and complete additional degrees. Plus, the multiple delivery models enable students to complete their degrees their way, something that has given us a very important competitive advantage. And as noted earlier, every institution has unspent, unallocated assets that can be leveraged to create new opportunities. The trick is that rather than looking for that next big shiny thing, it's important to shift your focus to what already exists and to see the low hanging fruit that you can almost always find. So those are my four um, off the top of my head. I'm sure there are many, but these are the ones that I think are most relevant right now. Well, so those are um, really interesting. I think, um, uh, you know, really good insights. Let me cycle back to a comment you made. I think it was in the third bullet and uh, looking at my notes. You talked about uh, being aware, leaders need to be aware of the potential for new innovations to lose their flexibility as they're, as they're being uh, adopted and, and, and put into the, the institutional structure. Um, could you say a little bit more? Are there some things that leaders need to think about uh, in terms of how to nurture or manage, you know, keeping that balance between it's got to be part of the structure or else you can't get, you know, wider adoption. But you're right, you don't want to lose that flexibility. And that seems to be a little tricky, I think. Sure. And that's a very, I'm glad you asked that follow-up question. Um, you know, a case in point is if you think about how at Baypath we launched new graduate programs, we don't just launch them and then park them in an academic department and leave them to uh, grow, develop on their own. We stay very, very diligent about watching the market for all of these programs. You know this in terms of Helos. We're constantly looking at what the competitor competitors are doing. We're looking at who else has similar programs. What's the pricing? How is that changing at our competitor institutions? So in other, in other words, we're, we stay very alert in terms of the marketplace context for each program, even after it's been developed and it's up and running. And the reason is because the market can change so very quickly. You can have a very successful program one year and 
if one of your competitors does something to offset that market context, like maybe they drop their price, or maybe they add a really popular um, concentration that takes students away from you, you could lose your market virtually overnight without knowing about it. And so what I find though, is that many, many institutions, they bring up a new program, they park it in the academic department, it gets embedded within the, uh, the machine, the infrastructure of the institution, and they quickly lose their market, um, the market attention that, that really needs to be paid on an ongoing basis to programs, um, whether they're new or whether they've been around for a while. Yeah, I, I do think uh, what you're also pointing to is the real importance of um, uh, information and data, staying, staying attuned to that, collecting it, looking at it, using it as you nurture nurture innovation um, you know through through its um, early and ongoing phases I think I think that's true whether you're in the academic sphere or in other spheres I think about student student affairs and student life uh, where we may be looking at uh, institutional data around students as well as external data and and, and uh, information that really helps us um, develop and uh, sustain, um, new ideas that that serve students and the educational mission of the of the institution well, um, but that that attention to information and data, um, it's not just a one and done thing. And innovation is what I think I'm hearing uh, hearing you speak to. For sure, yes, absolutely. Great. Let me let me talk uh, ask a question. Um, uh, you do a lot of writing and speaking, and you often refer to the importance of entrepreneurial or innovative mindset. Um, can you say a little bit about what you mean by an entrepreneurial or an innovative mindset? Sure. You know, the importance of this notion first uh, came up when I was completing my doctoral dissertation research on successful college management practices. Uh, I hate to tell you when this was, but it was back in the, the 1990s. Um, I studied the financial performance management practices of 100 small colleges over a 10-year period. And these were schools that all looked pretty similar at the beginning, but by the end of the 10 year period, some had become wildly successful. Some had changed very little and a handful had failed. And at looking at these schools, I had this burning question, given that these schools all started out in pretty much the same place. They had similar resource bases and constraints. Their context uh, was, was pretty similar. How then do you account for the difference in performance? How is it that some, but not all, were able to pull together the courage, the ambition, the skills to improve and to become more resilient? And one of my key findings, which turned out to be statistically significant and has been repeatedly confirmed throughout my career is that many institutions are short-sighted in their strategic approach, particularly during financially uh, financially challenging times, the temptation to cut one's way to success and improved financial condition is very tempting. And yet institutions that focused exclusively on retrenchment and sweeping deep cutbacks just did not do very well in my study. And that has been borne out time and again in other studies on this same, this same topic. In my study, 
I discovered that the schools that were the most successful exhibited a set of characteristics, which I termed an innovation or entrepreneurial mindset. And this mindset included such things as, and these all have to do with the, the senior leader and leadership team. Um, so the, the senior leadership team, the senior leaders possessed a number of common uh, traits, characteristics, including such things as a strong sense of vision, uh, coupled with a high uh, dissatisfaction with the present state of, of, of affairs. So in other words, they were never happy with the way things were. They were always uh, wanting things to be better. Um, they could see improvement everywhere. Um, they were highly um, focused, uh, not only in terms of being visionary, but they were also highly focused on the execution. So you had this yin and yang kind of uh, effect of both being visionary, but also drilling down and being very, very concerned about the execution and making sure that things were happening that were supposed to be happening. Um, they were very internally motivated, courageous risk takers, very opportunistic and outward looking. Uh, they were networkers um, and, and they almost seemed to be wired to network. They could, they could see opportunities everywhere, but oftentimes those opportunities came as a result of the networking that they were doing. Um, highly comfortable with uncertainty, um, focused on doing the right thing and asking the right question as opposed to doing things right. Um, they had this characteristic, which I thought was fascinating, which had to do with just, just work with what you have, make it up as you go along and just do it. It's kind of like the just ship it motto that one of the um, one of the mailing companies uses, but they they weren't into over uh, over uh, analyzing things. They they would push to just go forward with whatever you have in front of you, and they were highly curious. Um, the other important thing I found is that there seemed to be a synergy between the leaders and these characteristics traits, and the culture and the innate aspirations that seemed to be embedded within the culture of the institutions that they were leading. And frankly, I'm not sure which came first, but it's an, it's an important point. I think that in order for a leader who possesses most, if not all of these characteristics to be able to lead successfully, there needs to be some level of openness on the part of the institution that's going to allow for that. And so the fit between the culture and the aspirations of that culture on one hand and presidential leadership style and attributes on the other is critically important for long-term viability. So in a nutshell, that's, that's really uh, what I mean when I talk about uh, innovative mindset, entrepreneurial mindset. This is really helpful. I think um, I think it captures it well. I'm also struck uh, again by sort of the you know the comment about that fit between the institutional culture and presidential leadership style on this on this um, kind of uh, axis, if you will, the entrepreneurialness or innovative mindset. And um, uh, it it also suggests that um, uh, selection processes, boards need to be. Uh, aware of this themselves, um, if they're going to help match um, that presidential fit or help help secure that presidential fit. 
um, or pay attention to how the how the um, organization as a whole adopts that um, as a mindset itself. Oh, for sure. You know, it it, it is interesting because you see a lot of these position descriptions for presidents these days, and it seems like everyone says that they are looking for an innovator, um, somebody who's going to be highly entrepreneurial. And every time I see that, I I, I have to wonder how ready the institution is for that kind of a leader. So it's one thing to say you want a leader like that. It's quite another uh, to prepare the culture of the institution uh, for what's going to come with a highly innovative, a very entrepreneurial type of leadership style. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a freefall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Baypath University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then we designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. If you've completed graduate level coursework in higher education, you may be able to complete the program in as little as three years. All coursework is online. Students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. You recently published a new book about innovation with a focus on academic entrepreneurship. Um, tell, tell me a little bit more, if you would, and our audience, what's the book about and why did you write it? You know, academic entrepreneurship is the guidebook I wish I had had when I started out in higher education many years ago. Most academic leaders come to their roles without experience in entrepreneurial leadership, nor do most of us have any training in how to strategically manage and leverage our institution's academic resources. And yet, helping our institutions do well and thrive in this current environment means that academic leaders, provosts, deans, and the like, really need to think and act differently than our predecessors did even a few years ago. Today, most of our institutions are facing unprecedented levels of disruption, and this was before the pandemic took hold. Now the pandemic has accelerated the change that was already underway. From the research that I've conducted over the course of my career about successful college management practices, one thing emerged time and again as being really important. At the end of the day, 
successful institutions of all kinds and types had a competency in developing and actively nurturing an outward looking orientation while also cultivating a discipline around entrepreneurial growth in strategic ways that leveraged and strengthened their mission and their operations. In, in brief, the leaders of these institutions, as we discussed previously, possessed an entrepreneurial mindset. In addition to being highly disciplined executors, you can find many institutions that lean to one side, but not the other, but they're really exceptional and successful schools and leaders did both. And I like to call that the art and science of academic leadership. Well, that's what academic entrepreneurship is all about. And for those who are new to their academic leadership role, the book gives you a roadmap for how to set the stage for innovation on your campus, how to manage, how to more effectively leverage your academic program portfolio. In the first few chapters of the book, there are tools that you can use to assess and strengthen your personal entrepreneurial leadership IQ. Net-net, the book is a really good starting point for deans and provosts and their teams to assess their own personal readiness to innovate and lead change, along with some very practical suggestions for where to begin. The I would say about half of the book gives you a step-by-step -step guide for how to develop new programs from beginning to end. Everything from how to think about um, the approval process to how to uh, look for new programs, how to spot good market opportunities, um, and how to think about accreditation and uh, space needs, uh, learning instruction, delivery, you name it. So it's really a one-stop guide for not only how to think about academic entrepreneurship, but also then how to actually develop and leverage your academic program portfolio. Well, as, a, it, you know, as you well know, and many of our audience know, when, when you're writing a book that's, that's got this kind of span and, and depth, um, uh, it helps to be a little excited about it. And uh, I'm curious, is there something that you were most excited about as you were writing this book that really kind of sustained you in this journey? Sure. And, you know, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Um, Pre-COVID, as, as you know, I was doing a lot of speaking around the country on the topics that are included in the book. And I, I know from the positive reactions that I've received that there's not another book as comprehensive or as immediately practical as this one is for helping academic leaders get their arms around something that is enormously important for the financial sustainability of our institutions. And so I think that is one thing that's very exciting to me is to know that this, this is a great resource that will help a lot of uh, colleagues of mine uh, being a former provost and help their institutions to, to hopefully become more financially uh, sustainable. When I was doing the research for my book, I stumbled across the work of the Danish politician, Uffi Elbeck, who is the founder of this really cool little school called Chaos Pilot in, uh, I think it's in Copenhagen, it's, it's in Den Denmark. Um, it's an innovative business school that he created to teach students how to lead through uncertainty. And according to Elbeck, leaders today need to think about themselves as chaos pilots and they need to get really comfortable with and hone the ability to thrive and see a way forward, even when they're in the midst of uncertainty and under fire as a pilot 
is oftentimes in the midst of war or a dangerous situation. Well, I, I believe this book can serve a very useful purpose in this regard, first by exposing leaders to what this mindset looks like that I've been talking about and requires, and then by giving them the tools and a roadmap to make their institutions relevant. And I, I really think that relevancy and quality are gonna be increasingly important differentiators for all of our institutions going forward. And so knowing how valuable this book is and the contribution it will make to the higher ed profession and the well-being of our institutions is something that is personally very meaningful to me. I am a first-gen college student. I could have never imagined when I was 18 the professional trajectory that I have been really fortunate to have. I believe strongly in the need for a higher ed system that provides many, many options for our students. And one of the wonderful things about the American higher ed landscape is the availability of such a wide and range, a wide range of institutional types. And every institution has its own unique thumbprint or DNA. And when you can match students in terms of who they are as unique human beings to the thumbprint of an institution, you set the stage for incredible transformation for those students. But what worries me, honestly, is that you look at the fate of these smaller mission-centric institutions that face such critical financial pressure these days. And it's gonna be increasingly difficult for these small schools to survive on their own bottoms. And so survival and resiliency will require thinking differently, um, thinking about other institutions with whom they can align and share resources, including academic programs. And so I think for me, it comes down to being able to have played a role in helping these small resource constrained institutions become more viable so that they can continue to have a role in educating students um, and, and helping to transform lives in the way that so many of them have done for uh, many, many years. So I hope that my book will indeed help the leaders of these schools that are especially challenged right now to become the chaos pilots that they each have the potential to be. That's a great term. Um, I, I will have to say I had not heard that before and uh, um, it's a really useful way of, of thinking about the current context and, and, and leadership, quite frankly. Um, let, let me make another half turn here, if I might. Um, uh, on the Ingenious podcast, which you host, although you are the interviewee today, um, you have a signature question that you ask of every guest, and that's, what is on your radar that we all need to be thinking about in higher education right now? Tell us a little bit more about what have you heard um, and learned from the higher ed leaders that you've interviewed in uh, season one. What is on their radar right now? Uh, you know, if I remember correctly, Mila, I think this question was your idea. It might have been, <laughs> yes. You remember the conversation that we had, and I'm yeah. so glad. I'm so glad you suggested it because on a personal level, I have learned so much from the insights and the experiences that our guests shared. Uh, during season one, but I was really struck by the similarities in their responses to this question about what's on their radar. And so there, there were several themes that emerged that nearly every one of our guests touched on to a greater or lesser extent, starting with, perhaps not surprisingly, the rapid pace of change. 
um, the, the, the pace of change that we've experienced in recent years is accelerating, and this is having a profound impact on how uh, all, nearly all of our guests talked about educational delivery systems and structures. Greg Fowler, um, who is the, the head of the global campus at Southern New Hampshire University, uh, talked about the fact that change is happening at such a rapid pace that it's difficult for leaders on the ground to really grasp the impact of change. Uh, and, and what that means is that it's difficult to anticipate the, the, the way in which you're going to need to pivot sometimes until that change is right on top of you. Um, he points to the history of disruption in other industries and how the traditional players in those industries were oftentimes quite surprised when the disruption actually took hold. And so one of the challenges for higher ed as we look to the future, I think is to recognize the, the fact that everything is probably going to need to be examined in terms of the impact that change has had or will have, and that we're really gonna need to be courageous to think differently about how to respond so that our institutions can stay, can stay relevant. I think the second um, access, equity, student success issues was on also just about everyone's radar. Um, the COVID experience has accentuated the concerns that were already bubbling to the surface. Dr. Elsa Nunez, who's the president of Eastern Connecticut State University, talks so powerfully about the growing divide in our country between the rich and the poor, the shrinking middle class. Historically, we've relied on education to be that door opener for those with the most limited means. Um, and the community college in particular has played a, a really important role in being this first stop on the train for so many of our students with the most limited means. However, as Dr. Nunes pointed out, the shrinking graduation rates uh, are a real concern um, and should be a concern to anyone in our country who has a concern about retaining a strong democracy, which is going to require a, a, a strong middle class. Um, we, we need to give more consideration, I think, to the role that community colleges play in strengthening ac educational access, not just for degree attainment, but as she and others said and pointed out, uh, for the skills that people need to support themselves, whether it means a degree or a credential or something else. Um, so, that, so that they can contribute to their communities and to the broader society. Uh, the third theme, many of our interviewees talked about the need for higher ed leaders to think differently about innovation. Um, I, I loved the interview with historian, futurist, best-selling author, uh, Dr. David Staley. And in, in our, pod, in our uh, conversation, he suggested that for many of our institutions, the focus is on imitation, not genuine innovation. And by that, he suggests that those institutions that will do well in the future really need to focus on differentiation. He talked about the need for them to be market making instead of market taking. I really like that idea. Um, that successful institutions will need to find that space that they can occupy, that they're very uniquely qualified to occupy. It may mean an entirely different model of some kind, but the point is to think about differentiation of your institution and not just imitating what you see happening somewhere else. So that's, uh, I think, the third, the third theme. Um, 
uh, several, number four, several interviewees talked about the importance of colleges and universities becoming much more aware of the workforce needs of their regions and surrounding communities. A number uh, of our guests suggested new delivery models and ways to make the learning experience more relevant in this regard. At least a couple of our guests um, are big fans of uh, the boot camp model um, as an emerging and a competing model for higher ed that they suggest would be relatively easy actually for most colleges and universities to simply add on to the traditional curriculum um, in order to give their students uh, a credential uh, that uh, would, would give them skills that are in demand to pair with the traditional liberal arts degree. Um, Brandon Bastide uh, from Kaplan actually shared some really compelling research about uh, the higher starting salaries that liberal arts graduates are getting when they can present to a prospective employer their liberal arts degree, which is indeed still very valuable, paired with an in-demand kind of credential, such as in applied data science or cybersecurity. So it's the pairing of these two things that uh, makes the uh, traditional liberal arts graduate very, very marketable. Um, a fifth theme, um, which uh, is somewhat related, uh, a couple of our guests suggested that we need to broaden how we think about the time frame for the higher ed experience and move from this way of thinking about the college experience as something that has a beginning and an end to an experience that would play out over the course of an entire lifespan. And again, I'll go back to Brandon Bastide. He talks enthusiastically about his idea that he calls the Evergreen MBA program, where a student may enroll in a degree program, uh, but then stay with that institution uh, throughout uh, her or his life. So they may get the MBA along the way, but then they may also take courses here or there as a part of a pedagogically designed program in order to stay up to date and skilled according to whatever their employers may need at any at any given time. Um, Rick Bailey, who is the principal of RHB, um, also is a big fan of this model and, and suggests that the point is that rather than thinking about the college experience as a one-time, one-and-done kind of experience, we need to pivot and begin thinking about it as a lifelong engagement that may include a series of touch points, transactions, and opportunities for relationship building that are focused on meeting people's evolving and changing needs across their lifespan. And I really like this idea. Um, I think that for a lot of small colleges in particular, this could be a wonderful way to differentiate yourself and to endear yourself uh, with your alumni uh, pool. Imagine the possibilities if you were to set out to create and nurture lifelong engagement with your alumni using your curriculum um, and adding things along the way um, that could add value to their lives and to enhance their lifelong learning skills and, and needs. And then six, finally, doing a better job with student success was on just about everyone's radar. Um, our, our guests talked about the importance of making a college education more affordable, more flexible, and more aligned with what they're going to need to be prepared for the changing workforce of the future. 
uh, as essential. Those were all things uh, deemed essential for improving student success and graduation rates. So net net, um, the conversations were just so rich, but those were the six common themes that I heard from just about all 20 guests across the season. Um, these are really interesting. It, it, it strikes me that uh, a senior leadership team could take these six and really engage in some really rich conversation looking ahead, couldn't they? Mm, for sure, for sure. They would be a, um, a great uh, roadmap for professional development <laughs> for a yeah. senior team to, to yep. think about yeah, the, their own institution's future and roadmap to 2030, perhaps. Right, exactly. Well, let me, uh, let me do the proverbial turning of the tables. Uh, Melissa, let me ask you the same question. Um, personally, what is on your radar as we end 2020? Oh boy, you know, I really resonate with David Staley's thinking about innovation as differentiation. And I agree that those institutions that can figure out a market space that is compelling but also that is aligned with their core DNA and mission will have the best shot of success going forward. Now, I also know this is not easy. It requires courage on the part of the leaders to advocate for perhaps a different pathway forward for the institution. But I do think differentiation is going to be everything going forward. Um, the second thing I would say is that I'm actually highly optimistic about the current experimentation that's taking place on so many campuses across our country. You know, higher education gets a bad rap for not being forward thinking or sufficiently responsive. However, if you look back at the history of higher ed in this country over the past 400 plus years, you actually see an abundance of examples of where higher ed, the higher ed industry, reimagined itself in response to the changing needs of society. And we are living now in one of those eras. I think we're gonna see incredible transformation in the years ahead, so much so that when people uh, look back, they will look back to this time as being pivotal to the reimagination of higher ed as we know it. And, and so to be on the cusp of of that and to have some sense as to what's coming is just really uh, exciting. And uh, I, am, I am optimistic. The third and final thing I would say is that very few institutions are gonna be able to survive on their own bottom going forward. Individual institutions are going to need to figure out who they might best align with so that they can tap into a broader resource pool of assets and experiences to add to what they may already offer. And so I think this means we're gonna see an increasing number of mergers, of partnerships, alliances, and any number of new kinds of relationships emerging. And I think this is a really, really good thing. The challenge, however, is for an institution to be clear about their unique place in the market so that they can bring their distinct expertise and skills to the right partnerships so that together with others, the institution can be stronger and more resilient than in isolation all by itself. So this may mean, for example, that an institution is not going to offer in-house its entire curriculum for certain majors. For smaller colleges, as enrollments have declined, that's become a really tough thing to do. But instead, they may be tapping into a consortia 
through which they share courses so that they can offer to their students a much deeper range of curricular opportunities than they could ever afford to offer on their own. And again, particularly for small resource constrained mission focused colleges, I think this kind of business model with partnerships, alliances at the very center is gonna be survival, uh, is gonna be essential for survival going forward. Yeah, and I, 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 I so agree with your uh, assessment about that institutional collaboration and, and, and whatever that format is, um, it, it holds great promise. Um, and, and I do think uh, institutions, we've certainly seen this so far, but um, I, I think your insight on this is, is uh, dead on in terms of um, what's ahead for higher, higher education, particularly in the next, um, the next five years, which I think will be particularly difficult. So, um, so Melissa, um, let, me, let me ask, um, again, looking ahead into the next year, um, you will be launching season two of the Ingenious You podcast. Um, what can we look forward to in season two? Season two is going to be every bit as rich and interesting, if not more so than season one. We will have several interviews with college and university leaders. We will be hearing how they are doing coming through the pandemic and what they're looking forward to as we get to the other side. Our season two kickoff interview features Sandra Doran, the new president of Bay Path University. Now she became president right in the middle of the pandemic and has a lot of wisdom and many good insights to share from her experience. I'm also very excited about our lineup for the upcoming season, uh, our many, many other uh, guests. And I encourage all of our listeners to subscribe to Ingenious You wherever they get their podcasts, if they have not already done so, so that they will not miss out on a single episode. Excellent. Wonderful advice. And I think that is where we are going to wrap up today's episode. Melissa, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to uh, sit in the interview e-seat. And uh, <clears throat> it's been a wonderful, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been a wonderfully rich conversation. And thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Mila. And I wish you and all of our listeners uh, a, a lighter and a brighter 2021 ahead and time for restoration and relaxation during this holiday season. <laughs>